Good morning, friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the passage Daniel has just read from us, Acts chapter 19, which is where we'll spend the next bit of our time together this morning. A passage in which we find two stories of remarkable spiritual power. Stories that take us right into the very heart of the book of Acts overall. Jesus himself set the course for this book, the main theme that would guide it, all the way back in the first chapter of Acts in verse 8, where Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. Our stories here this morning take us right back to that Holy Spirit who has been near the heart of this book all along the way. And the subject this morning isn't new if you've been tracking with us through this series. That said, the urgency, the urgency of this subject that we'll consider together this morning, well, that went through the roof for me when I saw the results of a recent study of religious beliefs among Americans. Results of the, uh, the Cultural Research Center just recently published. Among the many interesting results from this study was one that, that, that speaks directly to what we're going to do this morning and why it's so important. In this survey, researchers found that 62% of self-identified born-again Christians believe that, this is a quote from the study, the Holy Spirit is not a real living being but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Two out of three self-identified, born-again Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is something more like a symbol or a force that you tap into than a person who's as alive as you are with his own agenda his own agency. I, there's so much about this study that I'm just itching to get into. So many things I want to know based on these results. But I can only assume that, the, that these numbers speak to the influence of, of a kind of pop-level spirituality even on us as Christians. Because if you go to Amazon.com and you look at Amazon.com's religion and spirituality category, you'll find a top 50 bestsellers currently in the religion and spirituality category. And among this list of bestsellers, right alongside titles on religion, right alongside titles on spirituality, you'll find titles on diet and exercise and time management. Because right now, at least at a popular level in America, spirituality is seen as that sort of tool. A tool that you use to, to aim your life at your goals. A tool to help you improve your life based on what you think would be best. You'll find titles like these in the top 50. Living fully. Dare to step into your most vibrant life. At your best. How to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. Winning the war in your mind. Change your thinking. Change your life. How to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life and other titles that fit within this category. It's not a coincidence, friends, that many of these titles include how-to in their subtitle. Spirituality, at least at a pop level out there in America right now, is seen as a how-to tool. Or maybe, here's an analogy that might help. 
in my sense is spirituality out there is seen as, as something kind of like the balance bike that my five-year-old uses to zip around this neighborhood. You guys seen balance bikes? You know what I'm talking about? They, they're like a training bike, but without, without pedals and without training wheels. Instead of pedaling first, but being balanced out by the training wheels, you learn to balance before you learn to pedal. So it's nice. It increases your speed. It's more efficient use of, of your resources, but the power's all on you on a balance bike. It's hilarious to watch. I mean, he's just running full speed, but coasting along on a bike. It's amazing. And, and not only is the power on you when it comes to a balance bike, the direction is on you too. He can go anywhere he wants. There are no strings attached. In fact, he at full speed, crashed his balance bike into a metal fence just across the street over here last week, and we made a substantial investment in the emergency department of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. With a balance bike, the power's on you, the direction is on you too. It's a resource, helps you get where you're going faster, but it all comes down to you. Friends, Christian spirituality, the spirituality that centers on the gift of the Holy Spirit, Two Christians from God. Oh, it's a very different form of spirituality than what you may be used to. At the center of this spirituality is a person. At the center of the promise behind this spirituality is a power that's not yours, but works in you. And at the center of this promise is a power that not only works in you, but guides you, carries you to a place God has decided to take you and a place that he will, to which he will carry you all the way. We're going to see something more of this spirituality, true Christian spirituality in the two stories that we get to consider together today. In the first one, we'll see something about how God's power works in you. Not as a tool put into your hands, but as a, as, a, as, as a power source that transforms you from the inside out. And in the second story, we'll see something about how God's power works through you. Where God captures your life and deploys it on his agenda, not your own. We'll consider first how God's power works in you, and then how God's power works through you. Let me take you to the first story, the one that begins in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. This story illustrates for us how God's power works in us. It's a story that takes place while Apollos is in Corinth and Paul comes into Ephesus. Apollo has just left Ephesus. Paul is entering in behind him to take up the work that was left behind. And when Paul arrives in Ephesus, Luke tells us, he, find, he finds there a group of disciples that are still really confused about what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, it seems they don't even know about Jesus. Perhaps they know something of him, but they're stuck in the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, who, who came preaching, calling for repentance and saying there's one still to come who's on his way, but I'm not the one you need. Look to him. They somehow did not get the memo that Jesus has arrived, much less that the Spirit has come. So Paul questions them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, we didn't even know there is a Holy Spirit, verse 2. They, he asks them, well, then, then how are you baptized? Into whose name? Well, we were baptized with the baptism of John. They were stuck in a kind of time warp. 
And I guess it makes sense that they would be. John, that, that people like them would have existed. John the Baptist was a super popular teacher. His, his influence was, was broad. And many people who came to Jerusalem for some sort of special feast may have heard him, been influenced by him, been baptized by him, and then gone back to their homes before they ever knew that the one he had pro- prophesied about had come. And so... Paul tells them, reminds them, that John never pretended to be the one they were looking for. He says in verse 3 and 4, that, that, or rather in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. It was a step along the way, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Oh, so the lights start to come on. And on hearing this, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And, and when they're baptized in the name of Jesus, Paul's hands upon them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues and prophesy just like back at Pentecost, just like in Acts chapter 2. The story is pretty simple. It's concise. It's straightforward. At least in how Luke tells it here. But I, I mean, I hope you're asking some big questions about this story. I, this story, as simple as it is, raises huge questions about what it means to get the Holy Spirit and what you get when you do have the Holy Spirit. Not only does it raise these questions, unfortunately, it has also caused deep and, and, and powerful misunderstandings about the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the believer. So, so with the story as simple and straightforward as it is, I want to just pump the brakes right here for a moment and do some work together to clear away possible misunderstandings from this story about how you get the Spirit and what you get when you get the Spirit. Let's talk first about how you get the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the dangerous misunderstandings that's been around for some readers for even decades at this point, based on this story, is that the Holy Spirit is a gift that some Christians get after they've become Christians. As if there are kind of different tiers of the Christian experience. So you've got the base level uh, features, like maybe you have the free version of Hulu. But there is an, uh, there's an option out there for you. There's a Hulu Plus out there. There's a Christianity Plus out there that if, if you tap into it, opens up a whole new world of features. And, and that's what you really want to do. You want to make sure that the Spirit is something you get as a Christian so that you can take it to the next level. And on a surface reading of this story, you can kind of see how they get there because it seems like Paul's found Christians and they just haven't had the Spirit yet. And so Paul puts his hands on them and gives it to them. Maybe it raises questions for you about whether that's something you've ever experienced. Maybe you've been missing out as a Christian all along. But that's not what's going on here, friends. Now, the the clear teaching of the New Testament overall is that everybody who's in Christ has God's Spirit in them. It's a package deal. To become a Christian, to look to Jesus as your only hope in life and in death, is to receive into your life the Spirit Jesus came to, to make possible for you. At the core of Christ's work is removing the barrier of sin that existed between us and God. And the sign that his work is done, that we've been forgiven and made clean, is that now God no longer dwells in a temple made by hands, behind curtains that separate us off from him, but that God has come to dwell even in us. So the very core of what it is to be a Christian implies the gift of the Spirit to everyone who's in Christ. That's why Paul, when he actually writes about it, when he writes about it in his letters, he says this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. In one spirit, 
We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul has no category for a Christian who doesn't also have the spirit. So what we see going on in this story is not some Christians who needed to be taken to the next level, the next, the next package of features available to them. What we see in this story are some men who weren't Christians. When Paul finds them, they don't, not only have they not heard about the Holy Spirit, they seem not to have heard the truth about Jesus. Paul has to remind them that John baptized with a baptism that pointed to someone else, not to himself and to what he offers. And when Paul baptizes them again in Jesus' name, it's because up to this point, they weren't followers of Jesus. They didn't live under his name. And it's at that point that the Spirit comes upon them, the point of conversion. It's then that they get this Spirit. So we need to make sure, first of all, friends, that we're not misunderstanding how you get the Holy Spirit's power in your life. It is not through some sort of extra tier that you've got to climb up into or pay your way into. It is a package deal with conversion. The New Testament's teaching is, is really clear about that on the whole. And that's really good news because of what you get when you get the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure we don't misunderstand that either. We need to make sure we don't misunderstand how you get him. It comes from conversion, not some secondary experience some people have later. But you also need to be clear about what it is to get him in your life because that could be misunderstood from this text as well. The main thing you get if you only have the details of this text at your disposal, the main thing you get, it seems like, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you is the ability to speak in tongues you never studied and to prophesy with the authority that these folks had. That's actually something that's been taught by many well-meaning Christians based partly on stories like this one. But friends, that is, that is just not what Luke is trying to say here and it's not what you should expect. There's something more going on in this story. It helps to know that this story is just a reenactment almost of something we saw earlier in Acts chapter 2. Back in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes for the first time on those who were disciples of Jesus. And immediately when they get the Spirit, the sign that he's come to them and the sign that he's now about to use them as his witnesses is that they speak in languages they never studied, languages that can be understood by the people who are all around them. And they begin to prophesy about Jesus, to tell the truth about him to those who've come. Now these guys here in Ephesus, they're living in a kind of time warp. They didn't know that the Spirit had come. They're stuck where, where early disciples of Jesus would have been stuck who didn't even know who he was and what he'd come to do, much less what the Spirit was all about. So here in this little encounter, the whole sequence of the beginning of Acts is reenacted for their benefit. Just like those first believers at Pentecost, these disciples are given the ability to speak languages they don't understand, languages they've never studied. Here's how John Stott puts it. They experience a mini Pentecost. Even better, Pentecost caught up on them. Better still, they were caught up into it as its promised blessings became theirs. See, what, what they experience here is not this normal pattern for Christians that all of us should expect. What they experience here comes from the fact that they were in an entirely unusual situation that, that we're just not in. Stuck as they were in this ministry of John, ignorant about who Jesus is and what he'd come to do. Now, why am I spending so much time hammering out some possible misunderstandings and making sure we, we, we avoid them? Let me boil it down. 
I'm spending all this time on these misunderstandings because you, friend, you might see the Spirit as an optional accessory to the Christian life meant to give you optional abilities like speaking in tongues that you haven't ever studied for yourself when the Spirit of God is so much more than that. The Holy Spirit as a power unleashed in your life is at the center of the hope of the gospel and the promises to those who are in Christ. You, you need to, I'm spending this time here, guys, because you need to know that the Holy Spirit is absolutely indispensable to what you're hoping for as a Christian. No Christian can thrive and grow without him, and no Christian has to. What this gift of the Spirit means isn't, isn't derived from this text. It comes from the wider teaching of the Scriptures and speaks into this text. The coming of the Spirit is something that was promised by the prophets. The same ones that prepared the way for Jesus said, one of these days, God is not just going to give you his law from the outside to show you what is good, but will come into you by his Spirit so you love what is good. See, the law as a great gift to his people was still something like a balance bike. It helped you. It helped you know what to do and what was better. It was a great tool, a good gift. But the power had to come from you. It was your legs that was going to carry it as far as it could go. And it wouldn't go far enough. And so in Ezekiel 36, God promises that it's not always going to be this way. That I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you'll love what I love from the inside out. And when Jesus talked about the spirit, there's a reason he said in John's gospel that it's better for you that I leave. Think about that, friends. Better that Jesus... God in the flesh, not be here beside me. How? How could that be better? It's because Jesus says, for me, when I go, I'll send him into you. I, I won't just be here beside you. I'll put God's spirit in you so that you come to love what I love, so that you see me for the beauty and power that I have. This gift that they receive in this story is not an optional accessory. It's at the center of what we Christians hope for. If we see the Spirit as something that might come later to some of us, and if we see His work as fundamentally about giving us the ability to speak languages we can't speak, we'll miss the central core of who He is, the bedrock gift to everyone who is in Christ, renovating us completely from the inside out. So I, 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 we belabor this point for this reason, friends so that you can rest in knowing that he is at work in your life if you're with Jesus. You don't have to live with a kind of spiritual version of FOMO for fear of missing out. As if the key to your spiritual life is just out there waiting for you to find it. Some experience you haven't tapped into, some book you haven't read, some second blessing you haven't earned yet. The key to your spiritual life is the spirit who's already at work and who always carries on his work all the way to the end. That's what this story shows us about how God's power works in us by the gift of his spirit to transform us from the inside out. The next story I want to focus on though shows us something about how God's power works through us. Just like this first story this is a story that's often misunderstood, one where we have to kind of clear away 
some rocks in the soil before we can plant down deep into the nutrients that are underneath. This is a story that comes especially in verse 11 and following of Acts chapter 19. Verse 8 of Acts 19 shifts focus from what God gave to these new believers to what God is doing through the ministry of Paul. It starts with a couple of things we're really familiar with by now. Paul going into the synagogue and reasoning with people and trying to persuade them that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. We see Paul posed there eventually and moving from the synagogue to another venue where he can keep on carrying on with his ministry. But, the, but, but in verse 11... Luke zooms in his focus on one of the most bizarre little stories in the whole book. It's a story that shows us what it looks like for God's power to work not just in us, but through us. Let me tell you this story. Let me walk you through its details, and then we can break down together what we learn from it. This story unfolds in three acts. Follow them with me. Verse 11 takes us into act one. God is doing amazing things through Paul. Verse 11 says that God was doing extraordinary miracles. We've seen healings before in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of Peter, but man, what's going on here takes things to a whole other level. I mean, just look at it. Even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. All they had to do was touch what Paul had touched and God is working miracles to heal and to restore. It's amazing. We're meant to be shocked by this. But we shouldn't be shocked by what happens in act number two of this little story. It shouldn't surprise us at all to see that some people try to get in on this unbelievable power for themselves. Act two picks up in verse 13 where we're told that there are some itinerant Jewish exorcists some folks who made their money by going around offering spiritual power for hire, they see that Paul's tapped into something they can't even imagine. His powers are far beyond theirs. It'd be nice to have the ability to sort of expand my market by not having to be there to do the exorcist. If I could just exorcism, if, if I could just like touch a, a rag, imagine how much further I could go and how much more I could make. They start trying to, to tap into Paul's power source. Only they think it's some sort of incantation. It's some sort of special set of words. They think if they just say, well, Luke gives it to us. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, then poof, the power will be theirs. Luke tells us that a group of brothers, uh, some, uh, sons of a high priest named Sceva, were doing this. They were actually trying to, to leverage the power of Jesus' name for their own purposes and got a whole lot more than they bargained for. An evil spirit that they intend to cast out calls their bluff and strips away all their pretense as well as their clothes. I mean, I don't know. This story just speaks for itself, doesn't it? The man who's possessed of the spirit overwhelms them strips them down, beats them up, and sends them running. There was a power here. That was more than they could leverage, and that sets up act number three. What the people did in response to what they saw. Verse 17. It became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, what has just happened. In other words, some people tried to, to, to tap into what Paul has, and they got more than they asked for. And look at how people respond. Luke tells us that that they can tell something's going on here they hadn't seen before. They're out of their depths. And some of these believers even, who must have misunderstood exactly what it was to trust in Jesus, have to come and confess that, that they are practicing magic like many others in Ephesus. 
Ephesus was famous for this, for the, for, the, for the practice of magic, trying to harness the powers of the world and aim them at your own agenda. Now they're confessing it. They don't want anything to do with this power. They know it's too much to handle. So a number of those who had practiced magic arts, verse 19, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now what's going on here? What's going on is that a group of people who had thought the key to their life was finding a power they could control and aim at their agenda have encountered a power that they can't deny but have no chance at controlling. And in what we see here from this story, there are two important points for us. Two important points for us from this bizarre little tale. First, God's power is never, ever, ever an instrument in our hands. God's power just is not an instrument in our hands to do the work we want to do for ourselves. The glaring problem at the center of this story is that these sons of Sceva, instead of submitting to God's power, tried to leverage it for what they already wanted to do anyway. Clearly, they already have an agenda Their agenda never changes. They're just looking to upgrade the tools that they've got for doing what they already want to do. Let's return to my little biking analogy. It's like they've seen, oh, Paul's got more than a balanced bike. He's got an e-bike. You don't have to actually do anything. It just does the work for you. I can just ride along, but I still want to drive. At least I'll aim it in the direction I want to go. I'll take the power. I want to hold on to the control. That's what these sons of Sceva's mistake is meant to teach us. You don't get to do that with God. His power is real and it is at work, but it is never, ever offered as a resource for our agenda. As if the only question were how to tap into it and get it aimed in the right direction. Friends, unfortunately, that view of God's power is alive and well today. There have always been teachers who claim that they can connect you to the power of God and show you how to unleash it in your life to accomplish the goals that you set for yourself. These guys were not the last would-be spiritual leaders to try to convince people of that lie. It's powerful and dangerous and pervasive. And I don't think we have a better example of that sort of lie in our world today than in the the increasing and terrible influence of the so-called prosperity gospel here in America and around the world. There are TV preachers and megachurch pastors and best-selling authors who make considerable fortunes telling you that God wants what you want for your life. And God is standing by ready to give it to you if you can follow his instructions or more likely buy whatever it is that they're selling. Friends, whatever else they're selling, they're selling an idea that comes from hell, that God's power is for hire if the price is right. Or if, as as one of those Ephesian magic books or words of incantation, if you can just get the invocation right. Guys, I, I realize that maybe most of you here in the room don't feel drawn to ministries like these. Surely you know what I'm talking about. I don't need the name, the name, the names for you to know who I have in mind. And, and maybe when you see the kind of jet-setting, pearly white smiling, designer-dressed, prosperity preachers doing their thing out there, your first gut instinct is to scoff. 
it's certainly mine to see it as pathetic and gross. But, but, but I want to bring it up here this morning in this spot because maybe exactly because that tends to be my reaction and maybe it's yours too. And normally, I try to avoid applications for you guys in these sermons that talk about sins that other people are dealing with that you're not likely to fall into. We don't ever want to become a, a place where we just pat each other on the back for not falling prey to all the things that, that people out there are dealing with. No, we, we preach and focus on what we need, the, the correction and help we need from God's word. But in this case, even if you don't find yourself personally drawn into the ministry of these prosperity preachers, I, I want to bring it up here because it is so powerful and so pervasive in the world out there right now. And because, maybe precisely because you're not personally susceptible to it, you might miss how serious a threat it really is and how powerfully it's functioning right now in the lives of precious people who were trapped by it. The stats about the, the pervasiveness of this way of thinking about God are staggering. The numbers of people buying these books, reading them, and contributing to these ministries. The amount of money going to ministries like this. And it's nowhere more powerful than in the communities that are most devastated by its empty promises. It thrives most in the most vulnerable places in the world. So when we pray for the spread of the gospel, friends... When we pray that God's word would continue to go out and to, and to expand, as Acts has taught us to do, one of the things we must regularly pray is that the prosperity gospel would die. That the people who, per, who, who, who are spreading it would repent and believe. And that those who have been trapped in that way of thinking about God and how to tap into what he offers would be set free for the much greater riches that are truly offered to them in Jesus. God's power is not an instrument in our hands. This story teaches us that and it echoes the message of the whole Bible. His power is real. It is at work. It is not at our disposal to do with it whatever we will. But the second thing we learn from this story is that because of God's power, we can be instruments in his hands. God's power is never an instrument in our hands. It's not a tool that we use for our agenda. But because of his power, we can be used by him, despite our weakness, our flaws, and all of our limitations. I love that this, this story of spiritual power, it, it echoes the main theme of Acts when Acts talks about the Spirit. That he's given to us not just so that we can have a more deep and personal encounter with God. Not just for our own experience in life. But is given to us for a mission that we're then sent out into the world to fulfill. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit came on you. Not just so you'll enjoy your prayer life more. Not just so that you will tap into your deeper, truest self. Not just for your own private benefit. But so that you will be my witnesses. I'll give you power to go and to do what I've put you here to do. And we can see that here in this text, how God's power makes us useful for his agenda. Friends, our eyes are naturally drawn to the extraordinary miracles going on here. I think that's just inevitable. These miracles are amazing. 
But I think Luke would have us to pay even closer attention to the bigger context of what's going on right here. Just in the paragraph just before we're told that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, what do we see God using Paul to do? Verse 8. For three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, everybody in the region, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And what do we see Luke doing to sum up the little story we just heard? Verse 20. So... Everyone went out clutching their piece of Paul's apron, cutting it down into the smallest bits so that they could spread those little pieces all over the world. So, Paul founded a seminary for training and how to make the most of your aprons in ministry. Now, so, Luke says, verse 20, summing up the point of all of this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's the real work. That's what Luke wants you to notice. This is what he cares about. And this is what God's power through you is for. This is why when Paul, nearing his own death, not many years after what happens here in Acts 19, when he writes a letter to his successor in ministry, 2 Timothy, to pass on leadership of this movement, He didn't pass on a set of incantations or rites. He didn't explain how to properly cut the faith's cloths and the aprons and how to touch them to wear or anything like that. When he wrote to Timothy, he told him that the word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's by this word that the man of God will be adequate and equipped for every good work. It's why he wrote to Timothy to say, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. It's why he told Timothy in that same letter to, to, to remember what Paul had entrusted to him, then entrust it to somebody else who can entrust it to somebody else. Because Paul believed that this word, this gospel, Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's foolishness to the Greeks, yeah. Yeah. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. But for those who are being saved, this gospel, this word, it's the wisdom and the power of God. It's the main event. This is where God works. God's power, the same power on display in Acts chapter 19 is alive and well. It is working even today. And it can work through us. But the key to seeing God work through us is not figuring out how to make the most of things like aprons and face cloths. It's to trusting that his power is working where he told us it would. Of course God could choose to heal and and do a ministry through any one of us like he did through Paul here. He tells us to pray that, that we will be healed of our sicknesses. We do. But God never promised to do Acts 19.11 through me or through you anymore. What he did promise is that through us, the word would continue to spread. So knowing that God's power is at work in the world, knowing that he can use even me and you despite our limitations and flaws, the the, the main payoff of this story for us, friends, has got to be keep doing what you're doing. Keep coming back to the word week after week. 
keep taking it to your friends despite the fact that it may not seem to make any difference for them. Keep going back to it because God promises, I will work here. Friends, it's so hard sometimes to keep doing the same thing over and over and over, isn't it? There's so much about us, surely, that would like the variety that Paul seemed to enjoy in his life and ministry. How much would you love to show up here one Sunday and just all of a sudden, through the touching of aprons, all of you who are sick and broken down in a body would be healed? Wouldn't it be great at one level to have a prosperity gospel offered to us? A power to do whatever we wanted to do, to see whatever change we wanted to see. That is not how God has promised to serve us. He has promised us that he will change us over time when we take him at his word and come back again and again and again to the same thing that gave us hope when we first believed, the message of Christ crucified and risen and still to come again. He can act however he wants to. Our job is to trust him to act where he's promised to. And I want us to pray together now that we will stay faithful to the steady week in, week out, and everyday work he's called us to, to engage his word and to share it with one another. Let's pray now that the Lord will keep us faithful. Father, we do pray that you would help us to have the same resilience Paul showed here in Ephesus over two years of reasoning and persuading and and urging people to see and to believe in Jesus. And we pray that you would show us the same kind of spiritual fruit in our life together that you gave to him there in Ephesus. That people would see this power at work amongst us and want in on it. Not on their terms or for their agenda, but submitting willingly and joyfully to your terms and your agenda. We pray that you would do this work because we know we can't. And because you have told us here that you will work through us, even us. And so we pray to you with confidence and with joy, trusting that you'll do it and asking just that you will keep us trusting and faithful week in and week out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.